My name is Beth Banks, and I'm the senior minister at the Unitarian Universalist Church of Davis. I welcome you to these few minutes of storytelling in our program, Sparks from the Flame. For more information about the UU Church of Davis, please visit our website at www.uudavis.org. The views expressed in this piece are not necessarily those of KDRT. Hi, my name is Ashley Haran, and I am the intern and campus minister at the Unitarian Universalist Church of Davis. And I'm going to read a reflection that I wrote as a part of our month-long theme of generosity. While she was on her honeymoon, my Aunt Linda's car went over a Mexican mountainside. She became a quadriplegic, paralyzed from the neck down. Several years later, Linda's doctors gave her medicine for a kidney infection, and she had a rare allergic reaction that left her totally deaf. For a long time, Linda was angry at God, at the doctors, at health aides who stole from her, and at the government that gave her disability checks that barely allowed her to pay her rent. But I don't remember Linda as an angry person. The Linda I knew was someone who focused on beautiful scents and rich smells and tastes, making up for her incapacitated feeling and hearing. She was someone who refused to let her paralysis keep her from making the art as she had always done. Someone who convinced a group of wilderness guides that yes, they should take disabled people out into the backcountry every year for a canoe trip. More than all of this, though, I remember Linda as someone who radiated a spirit of defiant generosity. When the world threw yet another health problem or bureaucratic hassle at her, she said, ha, you think you can make me be petty and bitter, universe? I'll show you. Just watch me. It was like generosity was the weapon she wielded to keep despair and frustration and anger at bay. So she gave little things like greeting cards and used books and invitations for tea. But she gave them to everyone, to her friends and family, to her neighbors in the Section 8 high-rise she lived in, to the Jehovah's Witnesses who came to her door. And then, when Linda died, we found her check registers. Every month, there would be a deposit from her disability check, followed by $40 for groceries and $350 for rent, but then, $5 for the Red Cross, and 10 for Amnesty International. In a good month, there would be a list of several $20 donations to different causes. In the not-so-good months, the checks were only for 2 or $3 at a time. But there they were, and at the end of every month, after all the other bills had been paid, a line of defiant, jubilant little donations. We've all heard the saying that our checkbooks reveal more about our values than anything else. Linda's example keeps challenging me to reconsider every time I'm tempted to say, I don't have enough to share. In the past year, this has led me to deepen my giving to causes I genuinely care about. Since I'm a minister in training, it made sense for me to model the kind of financial generosity I want to encourage among my congregants. So I began by committing to tithing, giving 10% of my income to the Unitarian Universalist Church I belong to. But of course, that's just a piece of it. I also give 
$25 a month to a community health center a friend of mine founded, dedicating to providing holistic wellness care to queer and poor folks who are often marginalized. And $25 a month to Poor Magazine, a collective of poor and indigenous folks battling houselessness and other forms of discrimination in the Bay Area. Along with these regular monthly donations, I also try to say yes whenever I can to the one-time asks, to the mailing list emails or the people with the clipboards in the parking lot raising money to support Planned Parenthood or Amnesty International or disaster relief. And if I have cash, I always give a few dollars to the person on the street asking for money. If Linda could always find money to give, even when she only had $17.43 to make it through the last week of the month, I figure, why can't I give in that same defiant, jubilant way? If I'm honest, I don't give this money away because I'm particularly saintly or self-sacrificial. Actually, I give because I'm a little selfish. Every month when I see the withdrawals from my checking account or total up the cash I've given away, I feel good that my values are reflected in both my work and my giving. I hope that in time, maybe I won't need the little selfish boost, that giving will become as natural to me as breathing. That's the kind of life I want to live. I'm not as generous as my Aunt Linda was, and the battles I fight in my life do not require me to be nearly as brave or defiant as she had to be. But she inspired me to make it a spiritual practice to ask myself, if I died tomorrow, would I be proud to let someone see my checkbook? By deciding to give the way I do, I've taken one more step toward answering that question with a resounding yes. For more information on the UU Church of Davis, please visit our website at www.uudavis.org. The Davis High Journalism Program presents local news from a student perspective. Welcome to this week's Dirt on Davis. For years, DHS's orchestra programs have been recognized for their abilities. The symphony orchestra is being praised for its work after the June issue of Downbeat magazine came out this month and hit newsstands nationwide. Kelsey Ewing has the story. One of the final DHS events of the year is the annual card show, which took place on Wednesday, May 25th, and brought crowds of curious students to the high school quad. Ruby Estiki with co-producer Monica Lopez-Lara has the story. Thank you for tuning into this week's Dirt on Davis. This is Grace Calhoun signing out. Dr. Angelo Moreno and his orchestra will be recognized as the best classical high school group in the nation. Number one, they were really shocked and really excited about it. And I think I'm really honored to have been recognized for all their hard work. First Chair Basis and DHS Senior Katie Ronning acknowledged that the competition is naturally fierce. There's a lot of really great orchestras out there too, and uh, you know, we can always get better. However, the orchestra had a head start on many of the other applicants. The group meets four days a week, and members are required to play an additional 120 minutes outside of school every week. That, in comparison to most symphonies, um, is about twice as much time as most groups get in a week. Most college symphonies play two days, two nights a week. Most professional symphonies play three times before a concert. And so we get a lot, a lot of time to get it right.
Not only has the symphony orchestra been praised for its work, but also the DHS music program as a whole was recently recognized by the Grammy Signature Foundation. And that was kind of a big deal because that means that uh, as a department, we submit CDs and all the information about our music department as a whole. And we have to have excellence in every single group to be able to win that sort of award. The symphony orchestra, along with the Baroque Ensemble and Chamber Orchestra, will play in their final concert of the year on Thursday, May 26th. This has been Kelsey Ewing with BlueDevilHub.com. One of the final DHS events of the year is the annual car show, which took place on Wednesday, May 25th, and brought crowds of curious students to the high school quad. Rubia Siddiqui with co-producer Monica Lopez-Lara have the story. DHS's annual car show took place on Wednesday, May 25th. Although this year brought cloudy skies and rain to the quad, many students still gathered around the cars to bask in their glory. Senior and student government member Emma McNeil helped organize the event. She says the categories for nomination are Best Stereo, Best 4x4, People's Choice, Best Exterior, Best Interior, Best Wheels, and Best Classic. We started putting out applications three and a half weeks ago, and we had to postpone the car show until a week later than what we were planning, which was May 25th instead of May 18th. Senior Clayton Jimenez entered his 1963 Cadillac DeVille. He says his favorite part of his car is a black and white leather interior, which he says was redone two years ago. He entered the DeVille into Best Interior, Best Classic, Best Exterior, and People's Choice. I don't know. It's just, it's unique. It's one of its, it's like a old classic, it's like a luxury car, and it's like one of its only, it's one of the only kinds here, I guess, of that kind of car. Like, we have a bunch of classics, but all of them are like, more like muscle cars or something like that, and this is the only car that's like long and supposed to be luxurious. Junior Michael Yen also participated in what was his second car show by entering his Chevy Camaro in Best Exterior and People's Choice. Yen is not optimistic about winning because he has noticed that other cars have received more attention than his. No, I know. I'm not disappointed. Last year I was kind of disappointed, though, because... But last year they had way better cars than mine, I'm not going to lie. But this year I definitely thought I deserved to be, like, I don't know, top five cars. I, there was an awesome Mustang. There was, like, a Ferrari... And then there was just, like, some really stupid cars. Although he doesn't expect to win, he will not be disappointed because he participates to increase school spirit rather than to win a prize. Oh, I don't think I should win. I I mean, it would be nice to win. I don't I don't think that I have to win or anything. Um, I just, I just uh, want to be part of, like, the school spirit thing, you know? According to McNeil, the cars that received the most attention were the Ferrari Cadillac and a truck with an impressive sound system. This is Rabia Siddiqui, BlueDevilHub.com. Thank you for tuning into this week's Dirt on Davis. This is Grace Calhoun signing out. Here it is! From deep inside your radio. Had to come back for Carmageddon. You know, you're not going to keep me out of Southern California when it's, it's international news. Our traffic. If you thought Casey Anthony was local news, and I did, imagine people elsewhere in the world being treated to news about the 405.
So I had to, you know, I had to come and, and witness. Yes, you can get a witness. That's how easy it is. And of course, nothing happened. No, you know, we were warned. That's the key. We were warned. We were scared. Nobody's at the beach now. The beach businesses are complaining. You can't keep you, you, people can't be kept happy. That's the that. ladies and gentlemen. There is uh, big news as this program goes out to the world in the uh, what's called the phone hacking scandal. Although, of course, it is also also a police corrupting scandal, at least in Britain. Who knows? You know, um, we know that, for example, um, well, I, I, I just have to explain, perhaps, to some, my fascination with this story, um, or, or why I, I bother talking about it. It's because, partly, um, most of the people who care about this story and who talk about it are in the world of journalism. And many of them are competitors of Rupert Murdoch's. And they would love nothing more than to see him go down, to fall, to collapse, to, for the empire to, you know, to do a William Randolph Hearst and go bye-bye. And um, nonetheless, the more honest of them admit a certain amount of grudging admiration for the guy because unlike the other people who tend to own newspapers in this period of time. He likes newspapers. He invests in newspapers. And he expands his newspapers. So they like that. Then they have to admit the reason he does that, well, he, there are two reasons that he does that. One, because he grew up in the newspaper business and, as they say in the trade, has ink in his veins, which would explain a lot. And two, because he figured out that much more than more profitable businesses like film or television, newspapers, if manipulated in the uh, appropriate manner to achieve this goal, can give one enormous political power. And other journalists think, well, that's, that's disreputable, and also they'd like to have that power. They think all all journalists think they should have that power. So they're you know they're mixed up. They're 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 cross currents there. So I just thought you know somebody should weigh in who doesn't have all that baggage. I just have you know I just have carry on seriously. Now, ladies and gentlemen, Newt Gingrich is uh, uh, still running for president. Well, if Herman Cain can run for president, you know why can't Newt? Herman Cain's at least brought pizza somewhere. Uh, and Newt is constantly now weighing in on the subject of the debt ceiling. So it's appropriate to point out that the Federal Election Commission reported this week that Newt Gingrich's campaign is $1,030,000 in debt. Um, appropriate for a true leader and visionary, he blames his consultants for the debt. According to his Federal Election Commission report, nearly half his debt comes from chartering private airplanes. He owes mo oh, about half a million dollars to Moby Dick Airways. <laughs> I don't name them, I just, and I don't shame them. I, Moby Dick Airways. Uh, according to his spokesperson, I guess he's still getting paid, R.C. Hammond, 
says Gingrich was unaware of the financial situation until the consultants left. Once problems became apparent, Gingrich made changes, quote, part of which included replacing private travel with commercial, unquote. So in other words, Newt Gingrich's consultants shielded him from the knowledge that private planes cost more than commercial ones. All right, then. Those, those, those must have been good consultants. Ladies and gentlemen, in the buried lead department, you remember, well, maybe you don't, Harold Camping. He was the guy who uh, said it was going to be the end of the world. Not Carmageddon. No, the, the end of the whole world. Um, using his denominational radio network, family radio, to propagate the word and having people and buying billboards all over the place and all that. He's, uh, he suffered a stroke last month. Uh, and there's a story about that in the Oakland Tribune. Way, way down at the bottom comes this about camping and his organization, the nonprofit organization, Family Radio. Camping took no salary in 2009, but loaned himself $175.5 million. Family Radio's board of directors approved the loan, whose purpose was not stated in the tax documents. Board members include Camping's daughter. Hey, if Roop can do it. Hello, welcome to the show. From the edge of America, from the home of the homeless, I'm Harry Shearer, welcoming you to this edition of the show. And who knew the uh, TSA did a, did, a, did a bad thing, according to a federal judge. Airport body scanners that create unclothed images of passengers ugh, were improperly adopted by the TSA as a primary screening tool. That's according to a federal's appeal, federal appeals court. Judge Douglas Ginsburg. Is that... What? TSA should have sought public comment before deciding that the scanners would be used everywhere for primary screening, Doug, uh, Judge Ginsburg wrote for a three-judge panel. The devices were developed at the direction of Congress, which told the TSA to give high priority to find new technology for screening that could detect chemical, biological, and radiological weapons. They could have, I guess, dumbed down the congressional mandate the way the Corps of Engineers did, when Congress told them to build the maximum, uh, protect New Orleans against the maximum probable. But anyway, due to the obvious need for TSA to continue its airport security operations without interruption, we remand the rule to TSA but do not vacate it, meaning TSA gets to keep doing it even though they did it wrong. Court said the passengers who don't want the body scan will receive a pat-down. We know about that. Touch my junk. Still on the Internet. This is, the be- uh, this is the best technology currently available to, te- to detect non-metallic improvised explosive devices, said TSA's spokesperson. Guess he hadn't heard of dogs. TSA employs two types of body scanners, millimeter wave technology, popular in Canada, relies on radio frequency energy. The other, which we've got, backscatter technology that uses low-intensity X-ray beams. And, of course... Who better to uh, administer x-rays to you than 
people who have been trained for 15 minutes who earn $12 an hour. Anyway, the um, and yes, the latter technology is uh, supplied by Rapiscan, for which uh, former Homeland Security Secretary Mike Chertoff did some, you know, representational work in Washington. The uh, the suit came from the Electronic Privacy Information Center, claiming that the scanners violated federal security laws and that uh, it violated the the rules of the game by adopting the scanners as a primary tool without first allowing people to comment. U.S. government is required to notify the public when it proposes a new rule and to seek comments, which the TSA didn't do. The TSA argued that this screening decision was not a legislative rule and was therefore exempt from the notice and comment requirements. Uh, The Electronic Privacy Information Center has also come up uh, in, in the course of its lawsuit with some documents which we'll discuss next week on the broadcast. But in the meantime... Tales of Airport Security. Oh, it's just seamless the way the thematic thing does the thing with the thing. Dear Harry, Max writes. That's nice, Max. I had an interesting experience going through airport security recently at the Auckland International Airport in New Zealand, says Max. My partner and I were traveling from Auckland to Shanghai, and we'd just gone through the security checkpoint when she was pulled aside for extra screening. An older security worker opened up her carry-on bag and began rifling through her belongings. pulled out a few small travel-sized bottles that contained various shampoos, soaps, and other liquids. The containers were blank of any branded label and had been purchased because they were under the regulation carry-on size. You know those bottles. The screener said that because the bottles were unmarked and did not have a branded label, he would have to throw them away. After we protested, he said, How would I know if it's really what you say and not some dangerous substance? We don't have a lab here that can test for that sort of thing. Unquote. continues, I remarked, couldn't somebody simply fill a branded bottle with whatever they wanted? How do you know what's really in any bottle you come across? To which he responded, we are told to take it at face value. We proceeded to the terminal. And Louise writes, Dear Harry, I've not heard you mention this, though. I may not have heard every show. Really, Louise? Really? 
But I think, she says, that while we may or may not be safer due to the shoe removal rule, it has probably been a boon to podiatrists. For over 60 years, I've had bare feet exposed to gym floors, health club shower stall floors, dance studio floors, etc., and never contracted athlete's foot. But I was unlucky enough to have sandals and no socks when approaching security and must have followed someone with the world's most intractable case of athlete's foot. Several trips to the podiatrist and steady applications of prescription creams have pretty much eradicated it after five years. And I now know that if one requests them, security has little paper slippers they will give you so you don't have to literally walk in someone's footsteps. I'm willing to bet that the incidence of athlete's foot has risen dramatically since the security regulation began. As you say, radiation is forever, but athlete's foot can be years. Which I can only say, Ugh. Tales of Airport Security, a copyrighted feature of this broadcast. And now, ladies and gentlemen, this is News of the Godly. A new investigation into the Catholic Church's cover-up of child abuse found in Ireland found this week that a rural diocese and its bishop ignored Irish church rules requiring all suspected molestations to be reported to police, and the Vatican encouraged this concealment. Aside from that, this is Lincoln, everything's fine. The government which ordered the probe into 1996-2009 cover-ups in the County Cork Diocese of Cloyne, that's why I'm reading this, of course, just so I get to say Cloyne, warned that parishes across Ireland could pose a continuing danger to children's welfare given Cloyne's claims to be following church child protection policy while actually ignoring it. Ireland's Justice Minister Alan Shatter pledged to pass a new law making it an imprisonable crime to withhold knowledge of suspected child abuse as he published this investigation into Cloyne. Shatter said previous pledges by Irish church leaders to place Irish civil law first and report all abuse cases dating back to 1995 had been, quote, built on sand. He says it's an open question whether other dioceses, 23 of which have yet to be investigated, that's, that's good investigating, Right there. We're still withholding evidence of crimes and presenting an an ongoing threat to children. The Cloyne Report, it's a report on Cloyne, is the fourth government fact-finding probe into how church leaders for decades protected their own reputation and their own pedophile staff members from the law at the expense of Irish children. The report by an independent commission led by Judge Yvonne Murphy found that former Cloyne Bishop John McGee and senior aides failed to tell tell police anything about most abuse reports and withheld basic information in all but one case. McGee, who before becoming Bishop of Cloyne, was a private secretary to three popes, resigned last year after a church-appointed commission made similar findings against him. The document this week detailed the church's suppression of information on 19 suspected child-abusing priests one of whom is currently facing criminal charges, another has already been convicted. Most of the others are dead or extremely elderly. One has been ruled too old and frail to stand trial. The uh, claims of abuse surfaced from 1996 onward, but sometimes were alleged to have occurred a decade or more previously when the claimants were children. 
The Cloyne cases were the most recent and occurred after Irish church leaders officially committed themselves to inflexible, detailed child protection policies. The report said that McGee, who is the former Bishop of Cloyne, repeatedly claimed to be observing these policies but did virtually the opposite. That's the most horrifying aspect of this document, said one Irish official. This is not a catalog of failure from a different era. This is not about an Ireland of 50 years ago. This is about Ireland now. The report said McGee and his senior aide were blind to the reality that their protection of accused priests meant that more children could suffer molestation. In one case, a Monsignor, uninclined, told police the name of an alleged victim but refused to provide the name of the priest. The uh, Monsignor conceded in a statement that in some cases he, quote, became emotionally and pastorally drawn to the plight of the accused. I did try to respond to victims with kindness, and I'm deeply sorry that I failed so many of them. Stand by for apologies of the week then, sir. I'm sorry, I mean Monsignor. Use the godly. Now, this is your brain on the war on drugs. Health experts in Portugal have said in the last couple of weeks that Portugal's decision 10 years ago to decriminalize drug use, did you know about that? Why are we all still here? And to treat addicts rather than punishing them is an experiment that has worked. There is no doubt that the phenomenon of addiction is in decline, not cloin, decline in Portugal, says João Gulau, president of the Institute of Drugs and Drugs Addiction. Number of addicts considered problematic, those who repeatedly use hard drugs and intravenous users, had fallen by half since the early 1990s. Other factors had also played their part, says Gulau, a medical doctor. Uh, the other factors are treatment and risk reduction policies, not just decriminalization. Portugal's holistic approach had also led to a spectacular, quotes, reduction in the number of infections among intravenous users and a significant drop in drug-related crimes, he added. The uh, law did not legalize drug use, but forced users caught with banned substances to appear in front of special addiction panels rather than criminal court. The panels composed of psychologists, judges, and social workers recommended action based on the specifics of each case. Government panels recommended a response based largely on whether the individual is an occasional drug user or an addict. Of the 40,000 people currently being treated, the vast majority of problematic users are today supported by a system that does not treat them as delinquents but as sick people, says Gulau. Drug use statistics in Portugal are generally below the European average and much lower than its only European neighbor, Spain. And just over a year ago, the powers that be in Philadelphia effectively decriminalized possession of small amounts of marijuana. Why are we still here? Why are we? By offering offenders the, choice, the chance to enroll in a three-hour class that would expunge the offense from their records. Not only did this give Philadelphia police more time and energy to focus on more serious crimes... But the city has saved thousands of dollars. Under the program, being caught with 30 grams of marijuana up to is no longer a misdemeanor, but a summary offense. You can pay $200 to attend a three-hour class on the ills of drug use and abuse, and the record is wiped clean of the offense. The city has saved, according to District Attorney Seth Williams, 
$2 million in the last 12 months. But, you know, who cares? Cities don't have financial problems now. They can spend whatever they want on whatever they want. That's how they do. That's your brain on the war on drugs. And now... He's not a general. He commands no troops. He's not an inspector. He's had no snooks. He's an inspector general. Mm Mm-hmm. Dateline Atlanta, several mental health clinics serving Georgia veterans, support the troops, won't you, had significantly high patient wait times over the last fiscal year and were slow to respond to the problem. Investigators from the Department of Veterans Affairs say some patients on electronic waiting lists were hospitalized or taken to the emergency room after suicide attempts. The uh, inspector general of the VA did not weigh in on whether those veterans tried to harm themselves because they were kept waiting. Or not. The report by the VA Inspector General's office was prompted by a complaint last year that alleged inadequate management of the electronic waiting list for the clinics, part of the VA Center. Support the troops, won't you, ladies and gentlemen? This is Le Show, and uh, yes, that uh, Archbishop of uh, that uh, diocese in Ireland has apologized, expresses remorse for the consistent failure to report abuse allegations. Oh, wait a minute. We need to have the... Th- yeah, it's apologies of the week time. What was I doing? Racing ahead of my headlights. We're so sorry. And other Paul Harvey cliches. In a letter to be read out at all masses... This weekend, the Archbishop of Cashel and Emily Dermot Clifford expresses remorse for the consistent failure to follow to uh, repu- report abuse allegations, saying the people of the diocese were entitled to expect the complaints to be handled according to church doc- guidelines. Really? You think? I'm sure you will still be experiencing many different emotions, including shock, anger, disappointment, and sadness at what is in this report, says the diocese's apostolic administrator. First, I wish to reiterate the apology which I made on the day to the many which, who have suffered histor- horrendous acts of abuse perpetrated by some priests of the Diocese of Klein. The sexual abuse of children, particularly when carried out by those in positions of trust and responsibility for the welfare of children, is always a criminal as well as a sinful act. I also apologize again for the consistent failure to report allegations to the civil authorities and for the mistakes and omissions which were made over a number of years in the diocese. For this, I am truly sorry. That's all from Klein. Deadline Fukuoka, Japan. Kyushu Electric Power Company apologized this week for the unethical attempt, their words, to make local citizens appear supportive of restarting its Genkai nuclear reactors during a government-sponsored television program as it released a report on its findings. However, Kyushu Electric President Toshio Manabe told the news conference he intends to remain in his post in order to restore public trust and to prevent further scandals like the one that occurred under his administration. Good thinking. Asking people to post comments with an act that goes against social and common sense and ethics, I sincerely apologize, said Manabe. 
According to the company's own report, a total of 141 people, including 45 Kyushu Electric employees, posted comments to the television program. The scheme was hatched with the involvement of senior company officials. The utility's vice president, Yasumichi Hinago, visited the Natural Resources and Energy Agency to apologize in person. Maybe he'll walk the plank. Oh, and one, I'm sorry, one more from Cloyne. The bishop in question, the retired bishop actually, Dr. John McGee, has apologized from his uh, hiding place in the United States. Give me your tired, your poor, your pedophiles. Bishop and your pedophile protectors. Bishop McGee issued a statement apologizing for failing all those who were abused by priests in the Diocese of Cloyne. The president of Cyprus apologized this week for his government's handling of a deadly explosion that killed 13 at a naval base and said if an upcoming inquiry finds him negligent, he would be prepared to take full responsibility. Dmitry Christofias promised in a national speech that two investigations into the blast would determine responsibility from the lowest to the highest level. He didn't, however, specify how high that responsibility would reach. He had come under harsh criticism for not explicitly apologizing in his Thursday speech for the events surrounding the detonation of dozens of seized gunpowder-filled gunpowder containers. And he appealed for calm. Hey, I think we all appeal for calm, don't we? Don't we? Daylight Snoqualmie, Washington, Tribal Chief Jerry Ennick has publicly apologized on behalf of the tribe for a joke resolution legalizing marijuana on the tribe's reservation passed last week by the Tribal Council. The council passed the resolution in a 4-2 vote as a joke for an upcoming show by country singer and marijuana legalization advocate Willie Nelson at Snoqualmie Casino, which the tribe owns. In a public statement, Enick criticized the council for using a resolution as a joke. He apologized to all Native Americans everywhere and to the public at large for the behavior of this current sitting Snoqualmie Tribal Council. Officials at Kentucky Speedway apologized and offered refunds to thousands of fans who were unable to attend last Saturday's inaugural NASCAR Sprint Cup race due to a massive traffic jam. And no, they weren't in California, and it wasn't the 405. Isn't that nutty? Traffic was backed up for 20 miles on Interstate 71, forcing state traffic to close an exit ramp when the facility ran out of parking spots. What? In addition, fans stuck in traffic were told to turn around once it became clear they would not make it through the nightmarish snarl. To those fans who are not able to attend the Quaker State 400, we offer our sincerest apologies, says Kentucky Speedway General Manager Mark Simondinger. 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 We'd also like to apologize to all of our fans who endured challenging conditions during our event weekend. As we've said earlier, we're committed to working with NASCAR state and local officials and traffic experts to address Saturday's traffic issues to ensure we never have this type of experience again. You know what they need? Traffic calming. Yeah, that'll, that'll, that'll anger people right up. Google social, uh, head of Google's a new uh, social media thing, Google Plus, Vic Gondrada apologized to Google Plus users for a site malfunction that caused the network to spam them last weekend, calling them growing pains for the new site, Gondrada said the company had a technical hiccup and apologized to 
test users for the spam. For about 80 minutes, we ran out of disk space on the service that keeps track of notifications. Hence, our system continued to try sending notifications over and over again. Yikes, he said. And one more religious apology. The Catholic Bishops' Conference of the Philippines this week apologized to the public after some of its members were embroiled in a controversy over the Philippine Charity Sweepstakes Office. In a statement by outgoing President Bishop Nerio Ojimor, the Bishops' Conference said the Church had been deeply wounded by the controversies in the Sweepstakes Office. A shepherd struggling to love you like the Good Shepherd, we're sorry for the pain and sadness that these events have brought upon you. The group also expressed deep sorrow for the pain that recent events brought to the people. A little vague, you think? Need some specifics? The statement continues. We are sad, and many of you, especially the youth and the poor, have been confused because of the apparent inconsistency of our actions with our pastoral preaching. It added. See, the thing is, three bishops accepted luxury vehicles from the Charity Sweepstakes Office Fund. Ojinar refused to answer questions from the media after reading his statement of apology. Three Catholic Church officials supposedly received luxury vehicles, including a Montero Sport, worth 1.7 million Filipino Philippine dollars. From Philippine Charity Sweepstakes Office Funds. And Poland's President Komorowski apologized last week in ceremonies that marked the massacre of hundreds of Jews by their neighbors in a village some 120 miles northeast of Warsaw. Once again, he said, I beg forgiveness. Speaking of the village of Jedwabnik. Hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. And now, ladies and gentlemen, as we continue the apologies of the week, we get to the media department thereof. I know you were waiting. Oh, by the way, speaking of you, and you, and especially you, I want to thank everybody who took the time and had the consideration to uh, send condolences to this program via Twitter and email on the occasion of the death of Ahmed Wali Karzai, the half-brother of the president of Afghanistan. Uh, I'm deeply moved that so many of you were concerned that that would mark an end to one of your favorite features in this broadcast. And uh, I want to reassure you that after a, uh, an appropriate period of uh, appropriateness, uh, well, the good news is President Karzai has another brother. And now back to the apologies. The media section thereof, as I say, the Guardian, what? Yeah, the Guardian newspaper apologized this week for reporting that The Sun, part of Rupert Murdoch's News International Empire, had obtained information about former Prime Minister Gordon Brown's son, not The Sun, the newspaper, The Sun, the kid, for medical records. The Guardian has played a pivotal role in revealing details of the News of the World phone hacking scandal, but it printed this one-paragraph apology. On page 36, the information came, in fact, from a different source, and The Guardian apologizes for its error. This is to correct a front-page front story a couple of days earlier that claimed the son discovered Brown's son had been diagnosed with cystic fibrosis by accessing medical records. Brown was in tears when he made the accusation. 
in Parliament. The Sun, the newspaper, not the kid, denied any wrongdoing and said the information came from a member of the public. And now, more. Rupert Murdoch held his head in his hands and repeatedly apologized to the family of murdered schoolgirl Millie Dowler, whose phone voicemail was hacked by the News of the World. He apologized to Millie's parents, Sally and Bob and Sister Gemma, and said, quote, this never should have happened, unquote. I guess meaning the hacking, not the apology. I don't. Speaking outside the hotel where the meeting took place, the family's lawyer said, quote, he was humbled, speaking of Rupert Murdoch, to give a full and sincere apology to the Dowler family. I don't think, the lawyer continued, somebody could have held their head in their hands and said sorry so many times, unquote. By the way, in case you didn't know, the uh, news corporation on Thursday hired the crisis management consultancy uh, now I'm, now I'm blanking on the name. I'll, I'll get it to you. Anyway, they hired a, a, a nationally known crisis management firm to help them with this thing. So now, yes, he's humbled. After meeting with the Dollar family, Murdoch emerged on the hotel steps and said, we will find out what happened, and I apologize. I have nothing more to say. Then there's this from the head of Dow Jones in this country and a man who's owned by News Corporation, a man who's worked for Rupert Murdoch for 52 years. Dear Rupert, I've watched with sorrow from New York as News of the World story has unfolded. I've seen hundreds of reports of both actual and alleged misconduct. The pain caused to ignorant uh, innocent people is unimaginable. Edelman is the name of the company, sorry. The pain caused to innocent people is unimaginable. That I was ignorant of what apparently happened is irrelevant, and in the circumstances, I feel it is proper for me to resign from News Corporation and apologize to those hurt by the actions of News of the World. With my warmest best wishes, Les Hinton. And then there's the apology that appeared as a paid advertisement in almost every English newspaper this weekend. We are sorry. The news of the world was in the business of holding others to account. It failed when it came to itself. We are sorry for the serious wrongdoing that occurred. We are deeply sorry for the hurt suffered by the individuals affected. We regret not acting faster to sort things out. I realize that simply apologizing is not enough. Our business was founded on the idea that a free and open press should be a positive force in society. We need to live up to this. In the coming days, as we take further concrete steps to resolve these issues and make amends for the damage they have caused. 
you will hear more from us. Sincerely, Rupert Murdoch. The Apologies of the Week, ladies and gentlemen. A copyrighted feature of this broadcast. And now, on a totally different subject and relating to totally different people.
And now, ladies and gentlemen, clean, safe, to cheap to meet, safe, safe, to cheap to meet, cheap, safe, to safe to meet, safe, safe, to safe to meet. Adventures of our friend the Adam. Addy? I have nothing to apologize for. Okay. Japanese waste incineration plants near Tokyo found high levels of radiation in ash. Officials say it may be from garden waste contaminated by the Fuk nuclear disaster. The radioactive cesium is detected in plants, not nuclear plants, plant, well, they are now, in Kashiwa City, northeast of Tokyo, about 120 miles from the Fuk plant. Officials stress the radioactive ash collected in late June and early July was safely contained within the plant plant. Maybe it is the plant. Workers are struggling under intense heat at the crippled Fuk plant, with as many as 31 people having fallen sick, complaining of apparent symptoms of heat stroke, according to TEPCO, the Tokyo Electric Power Company. The utility has taken steps to ease labor conditions, such as shifting work hours. There are apparently not enough. Sweat begins to build up inside masks within seconds of them being donned. Workers also appear to feel pressured and refrain from taking sufficient breaks for fear of slowing down work to contain the crisis. 
a reactor at the Oi nuclear plant in Fukui Prefecture. Yes, the name of the nuclear plant is Oi. Has been halted, that reactor has, due to a problem with its cooling system. Really, you think? And an investigation will be conducted to determine the cause of the glitch said government officials and the plant's operator, according to the Kyoto News Service. The problem with the number one reactor at the plant will not have an adverse effect on the environment, according to the news service. The reactor has been undergoing adjustment procedures prior to commercial operations for an unusually long period of around four months. Nothing to look at here. The schedule for the Nuclear Regulatory Commission's safety evaluation report for nuclear power plants license renewal in the Seabrook area has been pushed back about a year a new estimated date of December 2012. This is primarily due to the discovery that groundwater has negatively affected part of a concrete wall of an underground tunnel, weakening it by 22%. The problem is attributed to an alkali-silica reaction within the concrete due to the water. Isn't that like kind of chemistry 2108? The underground... Electrical tunnel involved is built into a bedrock foundation. At the time of construction, the concrete foundation was wrapped in a weatherproof, waterproof, sorry, membrane that didn't work as well as it was supposed to, according to the NRC spokesperson. <sighs> Although the concrete lost strength, it still meets all federal design standards and is still able to maintain support. The NRC issued a non-cited violation on the alkali-silica reaction problem. It's like, you know, possessing marijuana in Philly. Brown's Ferry nuclear power plant had far more problems during recent tornadoes than the Tennessee Valley Authority told the public after winds took down power lines and the plant went into automatic shutdown. Tennessee Valley Authority statements after the tornadoes indicated everything functioned as it should when all three reactors shut down, when the power they generated had nowhere to go because the towers had been blown down. But Documents the utility submitted to the Nuclear Regulatory Commission show reactor operators became distracted while manually operating cooling water flow to the Unit 1 reactor, and water began boiling off faster than it was be being replaced. Distracted, you know, with the Internet and the thing. Additionally, a valve failed, the diesel-driven fire pump failed, the diesel-driven generator for the security station failed, the warning sirens were lost, power to the chemical lab was lost, and an emergency diesel generator keeping cool water flowing to one of the three reactors shut down because of voltage fluctuations caused by a fluid leak after a brass fitting broke. Aside from that, Mrs. Lincoln, a, an expert task force convened by the NRC has concluded that nuclear power plants in the U.S. need better protections for rare catastrophic events. The series of recommendations included in portions of a 90-page report obtained by the AP will reset the level of protections at this country's 104 nuclear reactors after the Fook disaster, by making them better prepared for incidents they were not initially designed to handle. P Japan's Prime Minister Naoto Kan pledged to reduce Japan's reliance on nuclear power and called for debate on whether private companies should be allowed to run atomic plants in light of the disaster. Clean. Oh, and uh, Japanese nuclear safety officials say 45% of children in the prefecture where the three nuclear reactors melted down had thyroid exposure to radiation. Clean, cheap, safe, too clean.